Chapter sixty seven, part one of the Golden Bough. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Golden Bough by Sir James Fraser. Chapter sixty seven, part one. The External Soul in Folk Custom. Section one. The External Soul in Inanimate Things. Thus, the idea that the soul may be deposited for a longer or shorter time in some place of security outside the body, or at all events in the hair, is found in the popular tales of many races. It remains to show that the idea is not a mere figment devised to adorn a tale, but is a real article of primitive faith, which has given rise to a corresponding set of customs. We have seen that in the tales, the hero as a preparation for battle, sometimes removes his soul from his body, in order that his body may be invulnerable and immortal in combat. With a like intention, the savage removes his soul from his body on various occasions of real or imaginary peril. Thus, among the people of Minihasa in Celebes, when a family moves into a new house, a priest collects the souls of the whole family in a bag, and afterwards restores them to their owners, because the moment of entering a new house is supposed to be fraught with supernatural danger. In southern Celebes, when a woman is brought to bed, the messenger who fetches the doctor or the midwife always carries with him something made of iron, such as a chopping knife, which he delivers to the doctor. The doctor must keep the thing in his house till the confinement is over. When he gives it back, receiving a fixed sum of money for doing so. The chopping knife, or whatever it is, represents a woman's soul, which at this critical time is believed to be safer out of her body than in it. Hence, the doctor must take great care of the object, for were it lost, the woman's soul would assuredly, they think, be lost with it. Among the Diaks of Pinoe, a district of southeastern Borneo, when a child is born, a medicine man is sent for, who conjures the soul of the infant into half a coconut, which he thereupon covers with a cloth and places on a square platter or charger suspended by cords from the roof. This ceremony he repeats at every new moon for a year. The intention of the ceremony is not explained by the writer who describes it, but we may conjecture that it is to place the soul of the child in a safer place than its own frail little body. This conjecture is confirmed by the reason assigned for a similar custom observed elsewhere in the Indian archipelago. In the Key Islands, when there is a newly born child in a house, an empty coconut, split and spliced together again, may sometimes be seen hanging inside a rough wooden image of an ancestor. The soul of the infant is believed to be temporarily deposited in the coconut in order that it may be safe from the attacks of evil spirits. But when the child grows bigger and stronger, the soul will take up its permanent abode in its own body. Similarly, among the Eskimo of Alaska, when a child is sick, the medicine man will sometimes extract its soul from its body and place it for safekeeping in an amulet, which for further security he deposits in his own medicine bag. It seems probable that many amulets have been similarly regarded as soul boxes, 
that is, as safes in which the souls of the owners are kept for greater security. An old Manangye woman, in the West Shire district of British Central Africa, used to wear round her neck an ivory ornament, hollow and about three inches long, which she called her life or soul. Naturally, she would not part with it. A planter tried to buy it of her, but in vain. When Mr. James MacDonald was one day sitting in the house of a Luby chief, awaiting the appearance of that great man who was busy decorating his person, a native pointed to a pair of magnificent ox-horns and said, Tame has his soul in these horns. The horns were those of an animal which had been sacrificed, and they were held sacred. A magician had fastened them to the roof to protect the house and its inmates from the thunderbolt. The idea, adds Mr. MacDonald, is in no way foreign to South African thought. A man's soul there may dwell in the roof of his house, in a tree, by a spring of water, or on some mountain scour. Among the natives of the Gazelle Peninsula in New Britain, there is a secret society which goes by the name of Ingyet or Ingyet. On his entrance into it, every man receives a stone in the shape either of a human being or of an animal and henceforth his soul is believed to be knit up in a matter with the stone if it breaks it is an evil omen for him they say that the thunder has struck the stone and that he who owns it will soon die if nevertheless the man survives the breaking of his soul stone they say that it was not a proper soul stone and he gets a new one instead the emperor romanus lecapinus was once informed by an astronomer that the life of Simeon, prince of Bulgaria, was bound up with a certain column in Constantinople, so that if the capital of the column were removed, Simeon would immediately die. The emperor took the hint and removed the capital, and at the same hour, as the emperor learned by inquiry, Simeon died of heart disease in Bulgaria. Again, we have seen that in folk tales a man's soul or strength is sometimes represented as bound up with his hair, and that when his hair is cut off, he dies or grows weak. So the natives of Amboina used to think that their strength was in their hair, and would desert them if it were shorn. A criminal under torture in a Dutch court of that island persisted in denying his guilt till his hair was cut off, when he immediately confessed. One man, who was tried for murder, endured without flinching the utmost ingenuity of his torturers till he saw the surgeon standing with a pair of shears. On asking what this was for, and being told that it was to cut his hair, he begged that they would not do it, and made a clean breast. In subsequent cases, when torture failed to wring a confession from a prisoner, the Dutch authorities made a practice of cutting off his hair. Here in Europe, it used to be thought that the maleficent powers of witches and wizards resided in their hair, and that nothing could make any impression on the miscreants so long as they kept their hair on. Hence, in France, it was customary to shave the whole bodies of persons charged with sorcery before handing them over to the torturer. Meleus witnessed the torture of some persons at Toulouse, from whom no confession could be wrung until they were stripped and completely shaven 
when they readily acknowledged the truth of the charge. A woman also, who apparently led a pious life, was put to the torture on suspicion of witchcraft, and bore her agonies with incredible constancy until complete depilation drove her to admit her guilt. The noted inquisitor, Sprenger, contested himself with shaving the head of the suspected witch or wizard, but his more thoroughgoing colleague, Cumanus, shaved the whole bodies of forty-seven women before committing them all to the flames. He had high authority for this rigorous scrutiny, since Satan himself, in a sermon preached from the pulpit of New Berwick Church, comforted his many servants by assuring them that no harm would befall them, quote, so long as their hair was on, and sit nowhere lot on a tear fall fra their ain, close quote. Similarly, in Bastar, a province of India, quote, if a man is adjudged guilty of witchcraft, he is beaten by the crowd, his hair is shaved, the hair being supposed to constitute his power of mischief, his front teeth are knocked out in order, it is said, to prevent him from muttering incantations. Women suspected of sorcery have to undergo the same ordeal. If found guilty, the same punishment is awarded, and after being shaved, their hair is attached to a tree in some public place. So among bills of India, when a woman was convicted of witchcraft, and had been subjected to various forms of persuasion, such as hanging head downwards from a tree and having pepper put into her eyes. A lock of hair was cut from her head and buried in the ground, quote, that the last link between her and her former powers of mischief might be broken, close quote. In like manner, among the Aztecs of Mexico, when wizards and witches, quote, had done their evil deeds, and the time came to put an end to their detestable life, someone laid hold of them and cropped their hair on the crown of their heads, which took from them all their power of sorcery and enchantment, and then it was that by death they put an end to their odious existence. Section 2. The External Soul in Plants Further, it has been shown that in folk tales, the life of a person is sometimes so bound up with the life of a plant that the withering of the plant will immediately follow or be followed by the death of the person. Among the Mbengas in western Africa, among the Gaboon, when two children are born on the same day, the people plant two trees of the same kind and dance round them. The life of each of the children is believed to be bound up with the life of one of the trees, and if the tree dies or is thrown down, they are sure that the child will soon die. In the Cameroons also, the life of a person is believed to be sympathetically bound up with that of a tree. The chief of Old Town in Calabar kept his soul in a sacred grove near a spring of water. When some Europeans, in frolic or ignorance, cut down part of the grove, the spirit was most indignant and threatened the perpetrators of the deed, according to the king, with all manner of evil. Some of the Papuans unite the life of a newborn babe sympathetically with that of a tree by driving a pebble into the bark of the tree. This is supposed to give them complete mastery over the child's life. 
If the tree is cut down, the child will die. After a birth, the Maoris used to bury the navel string in a sacred place and plant a young sapling over it. As the tree grew, it was a tohu oranga, or sign of life for the child. If it flourished, the child would prosper. If it withered and died, the parents augured the worst for the little one. In some parts of Fiji, the navel string of a male infant is planted together with a coconut or the slip of a breadfruit tree, and the child's life is supposed to be intimately connected with that of the tree. Among the Diaks of Landak and Tejan, districts of Dutch Borneo, it is customary to plant a fruit tree for a baby, and henceforth in the popular belief the fate of the child is bound up with that of the tree. If the tree shoots up rapidly, it will go well with the child, but if the tree is dwarfed or shriveled, nothing but misfortune can be expected for its human counterpart. It is said that there are still families in Russia, Germany, England, France, and Italy who are accustomed to plant a tree at the birth of a child. The tree, it is hoped, will grow with the child, and it is tended with special care. The custom is still pretty general in the canton of Aragao in Switzerland. An apple tree is planted for a boy and a pear tree for a girl, and the people think that the child will flourish or dwindle with the tree. In Mecklenburg, the afterbirth is thrown out at the foot of a young tree, and the child is then believed to grow with the tree. Near the castle of Dalhousie, not far from Edinburgh, there grows an oak tree called the Edgewell tree, which is popularly believed to be linked to the fate of the family by a mysterious tie, for they say that when one of the family dies, or is about to die, a branch falls from the Edgewell tree. Thus, on seeing a great bough drop from the tree on a quiet still day in July 1874, an old forester exclaimed, The lards died new! And soon after, news came that Fox Mal, 11th Earl of Dalhousie, was dead. In England, children are sometimes passed through a cleft ash tree as a cure for rupture or rickets, and thenceforward a sympathetic connection is supposed to exist between them and the tree. An ash tree, which had been used for this purpose, grew at the edge of Shirley Heath, on the road from Hockley House to Birmingham. Quote, Thomas Chillingworth, son of the owner of an adjoining farm, now about thirty-four, was, when an infant of a year old, passed through a similar tree, now perfectly sound, which he preserves with so much care that he will not suffer a single branch to be touched, for it is believed the life of the patient depends on the life of the tree, and the moment that it is cut down, be the patient ever so distant, the rupture returns, and a mortification ensues and terminates in death, as was the case in a man driving a wagon on the very road in question. Close quote. It is not uncommon, however, adds the writer, quote, for persons to survive for a time the felling of the tree. Close quote. The ordinary mode for effecting the cure is to split a young ash sapling longitudinally for a few feet and pass the child naked either three times or three times three through the fissure at sunrise. 
in the west of england it is said that the passage should be against the sun as soon as the ceremony has been performed the tree is bound tightly up and the fissure plastered over with mud or clay the belief is that just as the cleft in the tree closes up so the rupture in the child's body will be healed but that if the rift in the tree remains open the rupture in the child will remain too and if the tree were to die the death of the child would surely follow a similar cure for various diseases but especially for rupture and rickets has been commonly practiced in other parts of europe as germany france denmark and sweden but in these countries the tree employed for the purpose is usually not an ash but an oak sometimes a willow tree is allowed or even prescribed instead in mecklenburg as in england the sympathetic relation thus established between the tree and the child is believed to be so close that if the tree is cut down the child will die section three the external soul in animals but in practice as in folk tales it is not merely with inanimate objects and plants that a person is occasionally believed to be united by a bond of physical sympathy the same bond it is supposed may exist between a man and an animal so that the welfare of one depends on the welfare of the other and when the animal dies the man dies also the analogy between the custom and the tales is all the closer because in both of them the power of thus removing the soul from the body and stowing it away in an animal is often a special privilege of wizards and witches thus the yakuts of siberia believe that every shaman or wizard keeps his soul or one of his souls incarnate in an animal which is carefully concealed from all the world nobody can find my external soul said one famous wizard it lies hidden far away in the stony mountains of Edzigansk. Only once a year, when the last snows melt and the earth turns black, do these external souls of wizards appear in the shape of animals among the dwellings of men. They wander everywhere, yet none but wizards can see them. The strong ones sweep roaring and noisily along. The weak steal about quietly and furtively. Often they fight, and then the wizard whose external soul is beaten falls ill or dies. The weakest and most cowardly wizards are they whose souls are incarnate in the shapes of dogs, for the dog gives his human double no peace, but gnaws his heart and tears his body. The most powerful wizards are they whose external souls have the shape of stallions, elks, black bears, eagles, or boars. Again, the Samoyeds of the Turukinsk region hold that every shaman has a familiar spirit in the shape of a boar, which he leads about by a magic belt. On the death of the boar, the shaman himself dies, and stories are told of battles between wizards who send their spirits to fight before they encounter each other in person. The Malays believe that, quote, the soul of a person may pass into another person or into an animal, or rather that such a mysterious relation can arise between the two that the fate of the one is wholly dependent on that of the other. Among the Melanesians of Mota, one of the New Hebrides islands, 
the conception of an external soul is carried out in the practice of daily life. In the Mota language, the word tamanyu signifies, quote, something animate or inanimate, which a man has come to believe to have an existence intimately connected with his own. It was not everyone in Mota who had his tamanyu, only some men fancied that they had this relation to a lizard, a snake, or it might be a stone. Sometimes the thing was sought for and found by drinking the infusion of certain leaves and heaping together the dregs. Then whatever living thing was first seen in or upon the heap was the tamanyu. It was watched but not fed or worshipped. The natives believed that it came at call and that the life of a man was bound up with the life of his tamanyu, if a living thing, or with its safety. Should it die, or if not living, get broken or be lost, the man would die. Hence, in the case of sickness, they would send to see if the tamanyu was safe and well. The theory of an external soul deposited in an animal appears to be very prevalent in West Africa, particularly in Nigeria, the Cameroons, and the Gabon. Among the fans of the Gabon, every wizard is believed, at initiation, to unite his life with that of some particular wild animal by a rite of blood brotherhood. He draws the blood from the ear of the animal and from his own arm, and inoculates the animal with his own blood, and himself with the blood of the beast. Henceforth, such an inanimate union is established between the two that the death of the one entails the death of the other. The alliance is thought to bring to the wizard or sorcerer a great accession of power, which he can turn to his advantage in various ways. In the first place, like the warlock in the fairy tales who has deposited his life outside of himself in some safe place, the fan wizard now deems himself invulnerable. Moreover, the animal with which he has exchanged blood has become his familiar, and will obey any orders he may choose to give it. So he makes use of it to injure and kill his enemies. For that reason, the creature with whom he establishes the relation of blood brotherhood is never a tame or domestic animal, but always a ferocious and dangerous wild beast, such as a leopard, a black serpent, a crocodile, a hippopotamus, a wild boar, or a vulture. Of all these creatures, the leopard is by far the commonest familiar of fan wizards, and next to it comes the black serpent, the vulture is the rarest. Witches, as well as wizards, have their familiars. But the animals with which the lives of women are thus bound up generally differ from those to which men commit their external souls. A witch never has a panther for her familiar, but often a venomous species of serpent, sometimes a horned viper, sometimes a black serpent, sometimes a green one that lives in banana trees, or it may be a vulture, an owl, or other bird of night. In every case, the beast or bird with which the witch or wizard has contracted this mystic alliance is an individual, never a species, and when the individual animal dies, the alliance is naturally at an end, since the death of the animal is supposed to entail the death of the man. Similar beliefs are held by the natives of the Cross River Valley within the provinces of the Cameroons. Groups of people, 
generally the inhabitants of a village, have chosen various animals, with which they believe themselves to stand on a footing of intimate friendship or relationship. Amongst such animals are hippopotamuses, elephants, leopards, crocodiles, gorillas, fish, and serpents, all of them creatures which are either very strong or can easily hide themselves in the water or a thicket. This power of concealing themselves is said to be an indispensable condition of the choice of animal familiars, since the animal friend or helper is expected to injure his owner's enemy by stealth, for example. If he is a hippopotamus, he will bob up suddenly out of the water and capsize his enemy's canoe. Between the animals and their human friends or kinsfolk, such a sympathetic relation is supposed to exist that the moment the animal dies, the man dies also. And similarly, the instant the man perishes, so does the beast. From this it follows that the animal kinsfolk may never be shot at or molested for fear of injuring or killing the persons whose lives are knit up with the lives of the brutes. This does not, however, prevent the people of a village who have elephants for their animal friends from hunting elephants. For they do not respect the whole species, but merely certain individuals of it, which stand in an intimate relation to certain individual men and women. And they imagine that they can always distinguish these brother elephants from the common herd of elephants, which are mere elephants and nothing more. The recognition, indeed, is said to be mutual, when a hunter, who has an elephant for his friend, meets a human elephant, as we may call it, the noble animal lifts up a paw and holds it before his face, as much as to say, don't shoot. Were the hunter so inhumane as to fire on and wound such an elephant, the person whose life was bound up with the elephant would fall ill. The Balong of the Cameroons think that every man has several souls, of which one is in his body and another in an animal, such as an elephant, a wild pig, a leopard, and so forth. When a man comes home feeling ill and says, I shall die soon, and dies accordingly, the people aver that one of his souls has been killed in a wild pig or a leopard, and that the death of the external soul has caused the death of the soul in his body. A similar belief in the external souls of living people is entertained by the Ibos, an important tribe of the Niger Delta. They think that a man's spirit can quit his body for a time during life and take up its abode in an animal. A man who wishes to acquire this power procures a certain drug from a wise man and mixes it with his food. After that, his soul goes out and enters into an animal. If it should happen that the animal is killed while the man's soul is lodged in it, the man dies, and if the animal be wounded, the man's body will presently be covered with boils. This belief instigates to many deeds of darkness, for a sly rogue will sometimes surreptitiously administer the magical drug to his enemy in his food, and having thus smuggled the other's soul into an animal, will destroy the creature, and with it the man whose soul is lodged in it. The Negroes of Calabar, at the mouth of the Niger, believe that every person has four souls, one of which always lives outside of his or her body in the form of a wild beast in the forest. This external soul, or bush soul, as Miss Kingsley calls it, may be almost any animal, 
for example, a leopard, a fish, or a tortoise, but it is never a domestic animal and never a plant. Unless he is gifted with second sight, a man cannot see his own bush soul, but a diviner will often tell him what sort of creature his bush soul is, and after that the man will be careful not to kill any animal of that species, and will strongly object to any one else doing so. A man and his sons have usually the same sort of animals for their bush souls, and so with a mother and her daughters. But sometimes all the children of a family take after the bush soul of their father. For example, if his external soul is a leopard, all his sons and daughters will have leopards for their external souls. On the other hand, sometimes they all take after their mother. For instance, if her external soul is a tortoise, all the external souls of her sons and daughters will be tortoises too. So intimately bound up is the life of the man with that of the animal, which he regards as his external or bush soul, that the death or injury of the animal necessarily entails the death or injury of the man. And conversely, when the man dies, his bush soul can no longer find a place of rest, but goes mad, and rushes into the fire or charges people, and is knocked on the head, and that is an end of it. Near Eket in North Calabar, there is a sacred lake, the fish of which are carefully preserved, because the people believe that their own souls are lodged in the fish, and that with every fish killed, a human life would be simultaneously extinguished. In the Calabar River, not very many years ago, there used to be a huge old crocodile, popularly supposed to contain the external soul of a chief who resided in the flesh at Duke Town. Sporting vice-consuls used from time to time to hunt the animal, and once an officer contrived to hit it. Forthwith, the chief was laid up with a wound in his leg. He gave out that a dog had bitten him, but no doubt the wise shook their heads and refused to be put off with so flimsy a pretext. Again, among several tribes on the banks of the Niger between Lakoja and the Delta, there prevails, quote, a belief in the possibility of a man possessing an alter-ego in the form of some animal such as a crocodile or a hippopotamus. It is believed that such a person's life is bound up with that of the animal to such an extent that whatever affects the one produces a corresponding impression upon the other, and that if one dies, the other must speedily do so too. It happened not very long ago that an Englishman shot a hippopotamus close to a native village. The friends of a woman who died the same night in the village demanded and eventually obtained five pounds as compensation for the murder of the woman. Close quote. Amongst the Zapotecs of Central America, when a woman was about to be confined, her relations assembled in the hut and began to draw on the floor figures of different animals, rubbing each one out as soon as it was completed. This went on till the moment of birth, and the figure that then remained sketched upon the ground was called the child's tona, or second self. Quote, when the child grew old enough, he procured the animal that represented him and took care of it, as it was believed that health and existence were bound up with that of the animals, in fact that the death of both would occur simultaneously. Close quote or rather, that when the animal died, the man would die too. Among the Indians of Guatemala or Honduras, the Nagual or Nawal is, quote, that animate or inanimate object, generally an animal, 
which stands in a parallel relation to a particular man, so that the weal and woe of the man depend on the fate of the Nagual. According to an old writer, many Indians of Guatemala quote, are deluded by the devil to believe that their life dependeth upon the life of such and such a beast, which may take unto them as their familiar spirit, and think that when that beast dieth, they must die. When he is chaste, their hearts pant. When he is faint, they are faint. Nay, it happeneth that by the devil's delusion they appear in the shape of that beast, which commonly by their choice is a buck, a doe, a lion or tiger, a dog or eagle, and in that shape have been shot at and wounded. The Indians were persuaded that the death of their Nagual would entail their own. Legend affirms that in the first battles with the Spaniards on the plateau of Quetzaltenango, the Naguals of the Indian chiefs fought in the form of serpents. The Nagual of the highest chief was especially conspicuous, because it had the form of a great bird, resplendent in green plumage. The Spanish general Pedro de Alvarado killed the bird with his lance, and at the same moment the Indian chief fell dead to the ground. In many tribes of southeastern Australia, each sex used to regard a particular species of animal in the same way that a Central American Indian regarded his Nagual, but with this difference, that whereas the Indian apparently knew the individual animal with which his life was bound up, the Australians only knew that each of their lives was bound up with some one animal of the species, but they could not say with which. The result naturally was that every man spared and protected all the animals of the species with which the lives of the men were bound up, and every woman spared and protected all the animals of the species with which the lives of the women were bound up, because no one knew that the death of any animal was the respective species might entail his or her own, just as the killing of the green bird was immediately followed by the death of the Indian chief and the killing of the parrot by the death of Punchkin in the fairy tale. Thus, for example, the Wotjobaluk tribe of southeastern Australia, quote, held that the life of the bat is the life of a man, and the life of a nightjar is the life of a woman, and that when either of these creatures is killed, the life of some man or of some woman is shortened. In such a case, Every man or every woman in the camp feared that he or she might be the victim, and from this cause great fights arose in this tribe. I learned that in these fights, men on one side and women on the other, it was not at all certain which would be victorious, for at times the women gave the men a severe drubbing with their yam sticks, while often women were injured or killed by spears. The Wotjobaluk said, that the bat was the man's brother, and that the nightjar was his wife. The particular species of animals with which the lives of the sexes were believed to be respectively bound up varied somewhat from tribe to tribe. Thus, whereas among the Wotjobaluk, the bat was the animal of the men, at Gunbower Creek on the Lower Murray, the bat seems to have been the animal of the women, for the natives would not kill it for the reason that, quote, if it was killed, one of their women would be sure to die in consequence. 
But whatever their particular sorts of creatures with which the lives of men and women were believed to be bound up, the belief itself and the fights to which it gave rise are known to have prevailed over a large part of South Eastern Australia, and probably they extended much farther. The belief was a very serious one, and so consequently were the fights which sprang from it. Thus, among some tribes of Victoria, quote, the common bat belongs to the men, who protect it against injury, even to the half-killing of their wives for its sake. The fern-owl, or large goat-sucker, belongs to the women, and although a bird of evil omen, creating terror at night by its cry, it is jealously protected by them. If a man kills one, they are as much enraged as if it was one of their children, and will strike him with their long poles. The jealous protection thus afforded by Australian men and women, to bats and owls respectively, for bats and owls seem to be the creatures usually allotted to the two sexes, is not based upon purely selfish considerations. For each man believes that not only his own life, but the lives of his father, brothers, sons, and so on, are bound up with the lives of particular bats, and that therefore, in protecting the bat species, he is protecting the lives of all his male relations as well as his own. Similarly, each woman believes that the lives of her mother, sisters, daughters, and so forth, equally with her own, are bound up with the lives of particular owls, and that in guarding the owl species, she is guarding the lives of all her female relations besides her own. Now when men's lives are thus supposed to be contained in certain animals, it is obvious that the animals can hardly be distinguished from the men, or the men from the animals. If my brother John's life is in a bat, then on the one hand, the bat is my brother as well as John. And on the other hand, John is in a sense a bat, since his life is in a bat. Similarly, if my sister Mary's life is in an owl, then the owl is my sister, and Mary is an owl. This is a natural enough conclusion, and the Australians have not failed to draw it. When the bat is the man's animal, it is called his brother, and when the owl is the woman's animal, it is called her sister. And conversely, a man addresses a woman as an owl, and she addresses him as a bat. So with the other animals allotted to the sexes respectively in other tribes. For example, among the Kurnai, all emu-wrens were brothers of the men, and all men were emu-wrens. All superb warblers were sisters of the women, and all the women were superb warblers. And when a savage names himself after an animal, calls it his brother, and refuses to kill it, the animal is said to be his totem. Accordingly, in the tribes of southeastern Australia, which we have been considering, the bat and the owl, the emu-wren and the superb warbler may properly be described as totems of the sexes. But the assignation of a totem to a sex is comparatively rare, and has hitherto been discovered nowhere but in Australia. Far more commonly, the totem is appropriated not to a sex but to a clan, and is hereditary either in the male or female line. The relation of an individual to the clan totem does not differ in kind from his relation to the sex totem. He will not kill it. He speaks of it as his brother, 
and he calls himself by its name. Now if the relations are similar, the explanation which holds good of the one ought equally to hold good of the other. Therefore, the reason why a clan revere a particular species of animals or plants, for the clan totem may be a plant, and call themselves after it, would seem to be a belief that the life of each individual of the clan is bound up with some one animal or plant of the species, and that his or her death would be the consequence of killing that particular animal or destroying that particular plant. This explanation of totemism squares very well with Sir George Gray's definition of a totem or kobong in Western Australia. He says, quote, a certain mysterious connection exists between a family and his kobong, so that a member of the family will never kill an animal of the species to which his kobong belongs. Should he find it asleep, indeed, he always kills it reluctantly, and never without affording it a chance to escape. This arises from the family belief that some one individual of the species is their nearest friend, to kill whom would be a great crime, and to be carefully avoided. Similarly, a native who has a vegetable for his kobong may not gather it under certain circumstances, and at a particular period of the year. Here it will be observed that though each man spares all the animals or plants of the species, they are not all equally precious to him. Far from it. Out of the whole species, there is only one which is especially dear to him. But as he does not know which the dear one is, he is obliged to spare them all from fear of injuring the one. Again, this explanation of the clan totem harmonizes with the supposed effect of killing one of the totem species. Quote, one day, one of the blacks killed a crow. Three or four days afterwards, a crow, that is, a man of the crow clan, named Larry, died. He had been ailing for some days, but the killing of his wingong, or totem, hastened his death. Close quote. Here, the killing of the crow caused the death of a man of the crow clan, exactly as, in the case of the sex totems, the killing of a bat causes the death of a bat man, or the killing of an owl causes the death of a owl woman. Similarly, the killing of his nagual causes the death of a Central American Indian, the killing of his bush soul causes the death of a Calabar Negro, the killing of his tamanyu causes the death of a Banks Islander, and the killing of the animal in which his life is stowed away causes the death of the giant or warlock in the fairy tale. Thus, it appears that the story of the giant who had no heart in his body may perhaps furnish the key to the relation which is supposed to subsist between a man and his totem. The totem, on this theory, is simply the receptacle in which a man keeps his life, as Punchkin kept his life in a parrot and Bidyasari kept her soul in a golden fish. It is no valid objection to this view that when a savage has both a sex totem and a clan totem, his life must be bound up with two different animals, the death of either of which would entail his own. If a man has more vital places than one in his body, why, the savage may think, should he not have more vital places than one outside it? 
Why, since he can put his life outside himself, should he not transfer one portion of it to one animal and another to another? The divisibility of life, or, to put it otherwise, the plurality of souls, is an idea suggested by many familiar facts, and has commended itself to philosophers like Plato, as well as to savages. It is only when the notion of a soul, from being a quasi-scientific hypothesis, becomes a theological dogma, that its unity and indivisibility are insisted upon as essential. The savage, unshackled by dogma, is free to explain the facts of life by the assumption of as many souls as he thinks necessary. Hence, for example, the Caribs supposed that there was one soul in the head, another in the heart, and other souls at all the places where an artery is felt pulsating. Some of the Hidatsa Indians explain the phenomena of gradual death, when the extremities appear dead first, by supposing that man has four souls, and that they quit the body, not simultaneously, but one after the other, dissolution being only complete when all four have departed. Some of the Dayaks of Borneo and the Malays of the peninsula believe that every man has seven souls. The Alfurs of Poso in Celebes are of opinion that he has three. The natives of Laos suppose that the body is the seat of thirty spirits, which reside in the hands, the feet, the mouth, the eyes, and so on. Hence, from the primitive point of view, it is perfectly possible that a savage should have one soul in his sex totem and another in his clan totem. However, as I have observed, sex totems have been found nowhere but in Australia, so that as a rule, the savage who practices totemism need not have more than one soul out of his body at a time. If this explanation of the totem as a receptacle in which a man keeps his soul, or one of his souls, is correct, we should expect to find some totemic people of whom it is expressly said that every man amongst them is believed to keep at least one soul permanently out of his body, and that the destruction of this external soul is supposed to entail the death of its owner. Such a people are the Bataks of Sumatra. The Bataks are divided into exogamous clans with descent in the male line, and each clan is forbidden to eat the flesh of a particular animal. One clan may not eat the tiger, another the ape, another the crocodile, another the dog, another the cat, another the dove, another the white buffalo, and another the locust. The reason given by members of a clan for abstaining from the flesh of the particular animal is either that they are descended from animals of that species, and that their souls after death may transmigrate into the animals, or that they or their forefathers have been under certain obligations to the creatures. Sometimes, but not always, the clan bears the name of the animal. Thus, the Bataks have totemism in full. But further, each Batak believes that he has seven or, on a more moderate computation, three souls. One of these souls is always outside the body, but nevertheless, whenever it dies, however far away it may be at the time, that same moment the man dies also. The writer who mentions this belief says nothing about the Batak totems, 
But on the analogy of the Australian, Central American, and African evidence, we may conjecture that the external soul, whose death entails the death of the man, is housed in the totemic animal or plant. Against this view, it can hardly be thought to militate that the Batak does not in set terms affirm his external soul to be in his totem, but alleges other grounds for respecting the sacred animal or plant of his clan. For if a savage seriously believes that his life is bound up with an external object, it is in the last degree unlikely that he will let any stranger into the secret. In all that touches his inmost life and beliefs, the savage is exceedingly suspicious and reserved. Europeans have resided among savages for years without discovering some of their capital articles of faith, and in the end the discovery has often been the result of accident. Above all, the savage lives in an intense and perpetual dread of assassination by sorcery, the most trifling relics of his person, the clippings of his hair and nails, his spittle, the remnants of his food, his very name, all these may, he fancies, be turned by the sorcerer to his destruction, and he is therefore anxiously careful to conceal or destroy them. But if in matters such as these, which are but the outposts and outworks of his life, he is so shy and secretive, how close must be the concealment, how impenetrable the reserve in which he enshrouds the inner keep and citadel of his being. When the princess in a fairy tale asks the giant where he keeps his soul, he often gives false or evasive answers, and it is only after much coaxing and wheedling that the secret is at last wrung from him. In his jealous reticence, the giant resembles the timid and furtive savage, but whereas the exigencies of the story demand that the giant should at last reveal his secret, no obligation is laid on the savage, and no inducement that can be offered is likely to tempt him to imperil his soul by revealing its hiding-place to a stranger. It is therefore no matter for surprise that the central mystery of the savage's life should so long have remained a secret, and that we should be left to piece it together from scattered hints and fragments and from the recollections of it which lingers in fairy tales. End of chapter 67 Part 1